All right, well, the latest update, the Danforth is now open right across the uh, entire uh, west or eastern part of the city there uh, from Broadview clear on through to wherever you're headed in the east. And uh, this was obviously a scene of terrible tragedy last night. Question is whether or not when the family releases a statement just within the last hour suggesting that their son struggling with psychosis. By the way, this is the Hussein family, Faisal Hussein, identified as a 29-year-old shooter, saying that uh, he suffered psychosis and depression his entire life. The interventions of professionals were unsuccessful. Medications and therapy were unable to treat him. While we did our best to seek help for him throughout his life of struggle and pain, we could never imagine that this would be his devastating and destructive end. Well, I know he's uh, not a shrink per se, but Dr. Brett Belchetz is the Global News Radio medical expert, and uh, on several fronts, we wanted to address this whole phenomenon with him. Doctor, it's always good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Brett, do you have any uh, inkling about, uh, you know, psychosis and depression, or is that beyond your purview? Uh, that's certainly something that I deal with all the time in the emergency room. I, I mean, mental health is a huge component of emergency care, and you know, typically whenever you hear these stories of, you know, people that have been picked up off the street, you know, if they were violent or threatening or acting in a nonsensical manner and the police suspect mental illness, the first place that those patients do turn up is the emergency room. And, you know, unfortunately, this is really, uh, you know, if we are talking about psychosis, if legitimately this is what it is, um, you know, violent and unpredictable behavior is one of the hallmarks of that condition because, for the most part, people who are suffering from this have an inability to fully understand their surroundings. You know, they tend to be very paranoid. They believe that people are out to get them or threatening against them, even when that's not the case. They tend to see things and hallucinate. They see things that aren't there. They hear things that aren't there. And so, you know, the world that they're seeing is just not the world that we're seeing. It's a very different experience for them. And a lot of the time, you know, they actually do believe they're actually just protecting their safety. And it's very uh, almost impossible to reason with. And as I said, often, you know, the first manifestation is aggressive and violent behavior. But, okay, uh, I'm just trying to determine whether this would be a plausible reason behind the tragedy, the shooting last night, and where the family statement says of the shooter, they acknowledge it's their son, had this problem with psychosis and depression, and it wasn't treatable or as much as they tried with medications and so on and so forth. Could he then have, let's just say, even away from this specific story in general, a person suffering psychosis, uh, could they put together a coherent plan to uh, wreak havoc? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say a coherent plan, but but certainly, you know, people who are psychotic, um, who believe there are things going on that are, you know, not what's going on, that, that, that believe that people are out to get them, they can wreak a lot of havoc very quickly. So, you know, you don't have to have too much of a coherent plan if you're schizophrenic, if you have access to a weapon like a gun. You don't have to have too much of a coherent plan if you're in a crowded neighborhood to do a lot of harm. So, you know, again, the the big question here is, you know, was he legitimately suffering from psychosis? Did he have a diagnosis of schizophrenia? Did he have a, you know, a mental health condition that really would explain this? Or, or is that sort of a, an explanation that doesn't hold water? And I don't think that there's enough, enough knowledge here or enough facts to, re- to really make that determination. But, you know, I would say if legitimately, if, if these were his, his diagnoses, I've seen some, you know, horribly, horribly ill uh, people with these types of symptoms in the emergency room. And, you know, the kinds of behaviors that we do see sometimes can be frightening and could certainly be, you know, consistent with the story that we've heard here. Right. And which would we say sort of in the uh, parlance of uh, the legal system, they'd be not criminally responsible, NCR? 
It's a possibility. You know, again, we need to understand what was their mental state at the time of the act that they committed. You know, were they of sound mind? Was their intent? You know, one of the requirements of our legal system is that you have to have criminal intent. And by definition, somebody who's mentally ill that doesn't understand what they were doing, that, you know, didn't really get the harm that they were going to do was, was operating under a set of circumstances that's not the reality of what the world really is, you know, it would be very difficult to prove intent. So, you know, again, a lot of question marks here. We really don't know what the underlying health history is here. But, you know, if you're posing to me the question, is it possible? Yes, absolutely, it is possible. By the way, when they say medications and therapy were unable to treat him, uh, that suggests a very severe case if, in fact, that that is the case. Uh, are you familiar with people who are beyond the help of uh, medications and therapy? Well, you have to understand that, that if we are talking about true schizophrenia, that there are very few sufferers of this illness that are ever cured. So, you know, we can control it for periods of time with medication therapy. Typically, you know, if we're talking about schizophrenia, uh, therapy is not generally helpful at all. Typically, the only thing that has any effect is medication. Um, you know, but I've seen lots of people who have been stable for years with, with good treatment of schizophrenia that, you know, for some reason or another, uh, it tends to lose control. And so, you know, they'll have downturns, the medications stop working. And then the minute that the effectiveness of those medications uh, goes down, they tend to stop taking any more medications and things can get out of control very, very quickly. So this to me is, is not unusual. Um, it, it, as I said, it's very, very rare that I've seen anybody with diagnoses like this where, you know, they go to a doctor, they get a treatment, and everything's just good for the rest of their life. And then, of course, the other question, if he's uh, undergoing treatment or had been undergoing treatment, uh, how do you get a gun? Well, that, you know, that's the, the big question here. You know, you know, where did this weapon come from? You know, how did he have access to it? Uh, you know, typically, you know, here in our society, uh, you know, it's not that easy to get a gun here in Canada. Um, and, and most of the legal channels to get a gun would not be available to somebody who is mentally ill. Um, most of the channels where you'd buy a gun if somebody was acting in an irrational or unstable manner wouldn't be available. So, you know, there, there are certainly some questions here and some inconsistencies um, with the story of mental health. But again, you know, there, we're, we're really lacking in fact here to, to arrive at a determination like that. Dr. Brett Belchetz is with us, Global News Radio medical expert. You know more about it than I'd actually assumed here, but uh, being in the triage in emergency departments, uh, that was the principal uh, idea that I wanted to ask you about. You know, when you have these kinds of situations, how do you uh, first address them, the first steps in prioritizing, especially if uh, mass casualties, I guess the last time we spoke, unfortunately, was three months ago, and that was on the case of the carnage along Young Street, where some people are worse than others, and you have to make that call in an emergency uh, room situation. Walk us through how the uh, calls might have come in, uh, that there were a number of people coming. Uh, how did they get, say, uh, placed in different hospitals uh, to, to coordinate that whole thing and uh, then determine who who gets first uh, treatment and what immediate steps are taken to address what their injuries might be? Well, well it's, it's horribly unfortunate and, and tragic that, that we're even having this discussion twice in such a short amount of time. I mean, these are decisions that, you know, in my career working in, in, in medicine in Toronto, we've hardly ever had these discussions or even had to think about these. So, you know, you know this is just a, a terrible, terrible time. But, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that we think about in a situation like this really is, you know, what category of injury do you fall into? So, you know, there's sort of three broad classifications that we think about. One is, you know, you have what are considered unsalvageable injuries. So, you know, you're somebody who, you know, we, we at the scene can realize right away that no amount of care is going to make a difference for you. 
Um, the other end of the spectrum is, you know, you have injuries and, you know, they need treatment, but these are not life-threatening injuries. So, you know, you can afford to wait a little bit. And then the middle category is you have injuries and if they're not treated promptly, you certainly could be at risk of a fatal event. And so when we try to look at who gets our attention first, it's usually that middle category. It's the people that, you know, they have these injuries that if we don't do something really, really quick, things are going to be very bad. Um, you know, after that, then we tend to say, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of looking at the other two categories for the most part. You know, we do have to make that terrible call for those people who look like they have unsalvageable injuries because, you know, we, we don't want to divert attention to somebody where we can't save them uh, and, and potentially ignore somebody who we can save trying to save something that's unsalvageable. The other thing that we think about, and especially in the field here, is trying to make sure that we don't overload any one hospital. So, you know, we're really lucky here in Toronto that we've got an incredibly great network of hospitals, many of which are able to deal with trauma and have really effective teams that can take care of patients like this. So, you know, when we have a mass casualty situation like this, we can have our ambulance services in a coordinated manner split the casualties among the hospitals so that any given hospital is actually able to cope. And what we try to do, again, when we have the most critically injured patients, we try not to send all of the most critically injured patients to one facility. So in this particular uh, scenario where there might have been several uh, shooting victims who were, you know, in potentially tenuous situations, um, we want to split those up so that each hospital can actually put its primary trauma team on those people who are in the most dire of circumstances who have the most likelihood of surviving if they get the right care. And then, again, what we try to do is then separate out all of those other patients that maybe have more minor injuries but which do need attention, and again, split them among the rest of the hospitals, potentially even sending them to non-trauma centers because, you know, the trauma centers are wonderful and absolutely what's required for people who have, you know, horrible life-threatening traumas, but most average hospitals can deal with an isolated gunshot injury, for instance, to a limb or to a part of the body that is not life-threatening. So, you know, these are some of the things we think about. Um, as I said, it is awful that, you know, we're really going from a point where most of us had practiced this and, and never really done it to a point where I'd say most of us in the healthcare system now have what I would say is far too much experience with it in a very short period of time. And you can determine the degree of the injury uh, rather quickly uh, to know, you know, where you, because uh, I guess, you know, every second counts uh, with a battery of tests, blood pressure, that kind of thing, heart rate. Uh, how does that well, work? Well, well, there's certainly something that we're going to look at. So, you know, even on an initial survey out in the field, the, the paramedics are quite good at understanding based on where the gunshot is, how worried they, they should be. So, you know, there is a, a bit of a luck of the draw to it in, in terms of where a bullet goes. Just because a bullet goes in the leg doesn't mean it's not going to kill you. If it pierces an artery, you could be in a lot of jeopardy very quickly. Um, just because a bullet goes through your chest doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be deadly. You know, if it, it, you know, I've certainly seen gunshot wounds to the chest that, you know, very fortunately miss all of the vital structures. So there are things that paramedics are going to look at. They're going to look at your vitals. They're going to listen to your lungs, make sure there's no evidence of a collapsed lung. They're going to look for any evidence of arterial bleeding, meaning an arteries being severed. So there's a whole bunch of things that they've been taught to look at and to respond to. And when they see the things that make them say, wow, this person's in a lot of jeopardy, so their vitals are not normal, you know, they have arterial bleeding, they have evidence that a lung is no longer functioning. These are the things that make them say, this is somebody that needs emergent attention right now in an emergency room in a trauma center because they have injuries that could kill them. Now, you know, when we say somebody's okay is, you know, their vitals are great, the, the bleeding is controllable, their lungs, their heart, and everything else is working fine. There's, you know, a quick survey that we can generally do in the field to figure these things out. These are the people that we say, you know, we can probably... You know, obviously, we need to rush them to hospital, but they can go to that community hospital. They don't need to be rushed to the trauma center right now, and most community hospitals can deal with those injuries. Brett, you've been most informative. I really appreciate your time. 
My pleasure, my pleasure. Have a great evening there. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we don't have to talk about this anytime soon, as much as we like, uh, you know, getting informed by you. But uh, as you say, it's too frequent now. Uh, I hope the same. Have a great night there. You too. Dr. Brett Belchatz, Global News Radio medical expert. I know we got our friend Cam uh, stopping by, as he does most Mondays and Fridays with leftovers and end cuts. Uh, We'll work him into the equation here before the top of the hour as well. Continue on the beat, uh, updating the story as it comes into us. This is, of course, the tragedy last night along the Danforth and any other salient points that we might offer.